ACASTCAST. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hi, and welcome to Deep Leadership. I'm your host, John Rennie. Well, I hope all is well with you today. It is a Friday evening, and I am drinking a hot cup of Bottom Gun Coffee from my friends at BottomGunCoffee.com. I have another great show lined up for you, but before we get started, I just wanted to make a quick announcement. You might have heard a female voice in the beginning of the show saying the words electric cast, and you probably are wondering what was up. Well, starting today, the Deep Leadership Podcast has been picked up to be part of the best business network on Electrocast Media. So how will that affect the show? Well, not much at all. You may hear from some new sponsors and you may hear me recommend another podcast on the network, but deep leadership will remain pretty much the same. It'll just be me, a microphone, and another incredible guest on board to talk about leadership. So you don't have to worry. I'm not going anywhere. And for those of you who are wondering, I did not get $100 million like Joe Rogan did. But I want to say that the reason our show was picked up to be part of the Electrocast Media team is because of our growth. Deep Leadership is now in the top 5% of all podcasts in the world. Yeah, that's right, in the world. Out of 2.7 million podcasts out there, we are now one of the top shows. So after two years of doing this, thank you. Thank you for all your support and for telling your friends about Deep Leadership. Your support, your listenership, you recommending our podcast to other people is what has made this possible. So thank you very much. Well, that's it. Today, my guest is Michael C. McDonald. Now, Michael is the former CEO and chairman of the board of Metafast, Inc. He has spent a lifetime in leadership roles and talks about it in a new book called From the Bench to the Boardroom, My Journey from Underdog Athlete to Turnaround CEO. In this book, Michael shares with us how he managed his career from a shy entry-level employee to a successful turnaround CEO. So if you are looking to better manage your career in the new year, this is your show. So are you ready to dive in? Let's get started. Welcome to Deep Leadership. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former Cold War submarine officer who spent 20 plus years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Are you ready for some real world actionable advice from John as well as his expert guests? I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. The show starts right now. Welcome to the Deep Leadership Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Michael McDonald. Michael is the former CEO and chairman of the board of Metafast, Inc., a nutrition and weight loss company based in Baltimore, Maryland. Prior to that, he served in senior leadership roles at OfficeMax and Xerox. He is the author of a new book called 
From the Bench to the Boardroom. And in this book, Michael tells how he went from an underdog athlete to a successful CEO. I'm excited to have him on the show to learn from his experiences. So, Michael, welcome. Hey, thank you very much. It's great to be on your show. I really appreciate it. But I'm really glad that you could be on the show. And uh, and really, we're, I'm here to learn from your experiences. And by the way, congratulations on the new book. And uh, uh, and we're going to be talking about it today. Well, thank you. No, no, it's 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 been a great uh, uh, life for me. I mean, I've had a terrific experience in the uh, athletic world and in the business world, and uh, it all started for me growing up in uh, Philadelphia in a lower middle class neighborhood. I went to. I was fortunate. I went to a Augustinian uh, school, which a lot of the professors, uh, teachers there, eventually were professors at Villanova. So I got a very, very good. Uh, background, but I really wasn't very successful. When I was in uh, high school, I, I basically got cut every year, my freshman year, my mm. sophomore year. I finally made the basketball team as a JV player, as a junior, and I sat the bench on the varsity, uh, played some games behind John Capaletti, who won the Heisman Trophy oh, wow. at Penn State. So we had some very good athletes, but I, I really didn't start till my senior year of high school, where I was able to uh, have a terrific year uh, uh, and get a scholarship to Rutgers University, which really was a changing point uh, in my life to be able to go to a, uh, a terrific university with great academics. And at that time, an emerging uh, basketball program uh, with a lot of very, very good uh, players that I had a chance to play with and good coaches at that yeah, time. Yeah, it sounds like it. it um, so, you know, you know, just looking over your background and your history, you know, you went from, you were, you know, a college basketball player on Rutgers, which turned out to be have an amazing team but over, over in, and just really developed into an amazing team. Uh, and then you had that really unique experience, but then you kind of went off into the, to the work world and then ended up having this really, you know, pretty significant rise in, in your career and, and success over the years. So uh, maybe tell us a little bit about your that that basketball experience and, and how did that le lay a foundation for what you did later on in life? Well, one of the things that I think I really learned from were the coaches that I had. When I was recruited at Rutgers, I was recruited by Bill Foster, who was a coach who took Duke to the Final Four before mm -hmm. Coach K. Well, many people yeah. Coach yeah. K. The only time they were successful, they were successful prior to that. And uh, Bill was a great organizer. I used to work at his basketball camp in the summertime. and He had terrific organization skills and was a very, very smart guy. Then he left and went to Utah. So I never played for him. So I went in to go to Rutgers and play for Bill. He leaves and go to U goes to Utah. And then I played for a gentleman by the name of Dick Lloyd. And Dick Vitale was one of the assistants. And one of the things I learned from them, Vitale was a tremendous motivator. And Dick Lloyd was a very polished guy. He had worked for Foster. So very classy individuals, high ethics, uh, very focused on teamwork. And, and then Dick had this great enthusiasm that every day you got up, you wanted to accomplish something and have great enthusiasm for life. And then they, uh, Dick had a tough time and then he left and re resigned after two years. And Tom Young came in from American University and Tom over 12 years, won over 240 games at Rutgers. And uh, when I was there, took us to the NCAA my senior year, then next year, the final four, very successful coach. Tom was very disciplined, very, very tough guy, mm -hmm 
almost more the military kind of background that you're used to a little bit in your career. Uh, and he was the guy who uh, really focused on hard work and uh, dedication and focus and teamwork. And, you know, and he really pushed you very, very hard as, as a, as a person. And, and for me, the interesting thing was, is, uh, I played behind when Dick Vitale came in. He brought in Ed Jordan, Phil Sellers, Mike Mike Dabney, Hollis Copeland. Three of those players played in the NBA. Mm. So I really averaged 17 points a game as a freshman, but I never started a varsity game. So I'm playing behind these very good players, never playing, but really working hard. And I think one of the things that taught me was learning what your role is mm. and one is I wasn't a quitter. I wasn't going to quit because I wasn't playing. But I wasn't going to transfer uh, from, to one school to the other because I knew I was there to get an education. And Rutgers was a terrific academic school. So I, I and, and I really learned teamwork from the guys I played with and learning what my role was and being part of a team. And when I was younger, I was a pretty quiet person. And I really started to develop more confidence as I was there. And the other thing that happened was I met some terrific alumni who were business people and role models. I met a guy named Abe Saddam, who, who owned a farm, was a president of a bank, ran an insurance company. He was in all kinds of businesses. And I got a chance to meet people that I never was exposed to in Philadelphia growing up in the neighborhood where I was. And, um, and I can remember, you know, we rarely went out to dinner, you know, is, and then here I was uh, at Rutgers and we'd be going to dinner at a restaurant, French restaurant in Princeton, New Jersey, you know, and, uh, and I'd be sitting there saying, geez, this is incredible. And look how successful this individual is. And I think one of the things I saw was, you know, boy, a university like this with uh, 50,000 students and all these different opportunities. And I said, you know, if you really take advantage of this, and you 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 really get into the academic side of it, and you focus on on doing that, uh, boy, it can give you a great step forward uh, in your life. So I was very fortunate to have that background, and we won. And you know, you when you're on a winning team, yeah. and you and you all play together, you know, you don't accept losing very easily. Mm. You know, in my two years there, we were eighteen and eight. My junior year, we were twenty two and seven. My senior year, then they went thirty one and two. So you think mm. about it. Over three years of that period of time, you know, Rutgers University lost seventeen games over three seasons. Wow. So it was it was it was pretty powerful and and a very very strong thing. And uh, at the same time, I had a chance to meet my wife Jean, who was who was the assistant to the basketball coach, and we were the same age and five days apart. So I had a chance to meet my wife also while I was while I was there. And then I got a great opportunity when I was finishing my senior at Rutgers, Jim Valvano. Uh, called me who was playing used to play at Rutgers and Jim was, was a tremendous uh, motivator he was at Bucknell so it's actually a pretty funny story he says to me Mike do you want to come to Bucknell and get your master's in history or something that's what we got so I said to Jimmy I'll, I said I'll come because I at that time I thought I wanted to coach so I said I'll come coach and I'll take graduate courses and get my master's in history next day he calls me Mike I just took the job at Iona the only thing we have is a business school so would you go to the business school? <laughs> and so it was the next day. So here I was, you know, as every college kid, I didn't know what I really wanted to yeah, do. Yeah. You know, anybody says they do. I, I, I'm not saying so, no, if that's sure, the sure thing, but so Jim calls me and the next day I take the job and I go to, I go to Iona. So Iona, when I go to the business school, I'm the only young kid right out of college. Cause mm. most of the people at the Iona business school were IBM executives 
who had already been working in Armonk at IBM, one of their, one of their big uh, regional offices. So I, I go to go there. But the big thing was I ended up working for Jim and he was the greatest salesperson I've ever known. Mm. He had great sales skills, great motivational skills. In fact, um, one day he said to me, now, I only had about 12 buildings and one dormitory, 300 students. I think about that. I, and, and when I had my interview with Jim, it was an interesting thing. He said to me, Mike, I'm going to win the national championship. Hmm. And I said, here? That was my response. I said, you mean here at Iona? He said, Mike, I'm going to win the national championship. That's my goal. And we're going to do it. And and he said to me, your job is campus visits. Iona had 12 buildings and one dorm. That take me 10 minutes. He had me taking each recruit to Madison Square Garden, driving around New York City, uh, taking them uh, to meet executives at IBM who had gone to Iona, uh, you know, going out to see the college. By the time I got to the college, it was 10 minutes of the college and visiting him. And it was a six hour marketing promotion around New York City. Right. And that was salesmanship. And the thing that really helped me when I went to Xerox was I had learned to sell from one of the great salespeople ever. And Xerox taught me the process of sales, but I really learned sales from people like Dick Vitale and Jim Valvano, who were terrific salespeople. Really interesting. So, you you know, you're, what you've talked about is that you went, when you went to Rutgers, you just were exposed to something that you'd never been exposed to in the early part of your life. With respect to you were you were around um, great leaders. Each of them had something special that you could you could learn from you're around, you know, team members that were extremely good. You were on a winning team, right? And then you got to see what life was like, uh, like you said, uh, you know, going to eat at restaurants you'd never even thought of before and sort of sort of planted a seed. And the next thing you know, you end up in, uh, you know, this graduate program, again, learning from a great uh, sales mentor. So all these things, almost in a way, it's exposed you to a life that you didn't even think existed, right? When you first you know, entered into college and as a college yeah, athlete. I, I had I had no idea when I was a kid. My father was a taxi driver and a truck driver, wow. worked 16 hours a day. My mom was a rocket. She was a dancer. And uh, so it was exposure that I'd never seen. But the thing that I think was most important that it showed me was, and one of the reasons I wanted to write the book is, you can be any kid anywhere, mm. coming from a poor family, coming from a lower middle class family, coming from a wealthy family. It doesn't matter what your background is. If you get a good education and you work hard and you apply yourself, you can be successful in anything and nothing will stop you. And the other thing I learned was I sat the bench behind guys who could go up and they could dunk and they could do all these things. I, I was a great shooter, but I didn't have their talent. And the thing that I realized was you didn't need to be successful in business. You needed your brains. You needed to work hard. You needed to be a team player. You needed to fit into the culture of the organization you were in. You needed to come in and, and really apply yourself. And if you did that, there were no limitations on your success. Yeah. Like yeah. there is in sports where you're limited based on physical skills and abilities. Yeah, you that's know, true. Uh, that's true. And, but, and, and but, I, I, I thought that was important. But you also said this was interesting. You said I learned I learned that um, I learned what, what my role was and to be able to play that role on that team. And I think some people don't uh, figure that out in their life, right? They they want a different role. They're not they're not content with the role that they have, and so sometimes they want to 
you know, push to another role before they're ready for it, you know, and I think uh, part of that lesson is that learning what your role is and being really good at that role, and that tends to open up other opportunities if you're really good at doing your, the job that you've been asked to do. Well, I, I think what you're saying is right. I see too many young people think they, they join a company, they should be at the top in like five minutes. Mm -hmm. And the real reality is, if you looked at me, I spent 33 years at Xerox and over 20 with Metafast between the board and the company. So I spent 53 years combined with two organizations. So I wasn't somebody who was jumping all around. Right. I was really focused on being successful in those organizations. Hey, not that I didn't interview for other opportunities. You always should make sure you're looking at the market and seeing if there's other opportunities, if, if, if organizations aren't giving you a chance to progress. But I was very fortunate. When I was at Xerox, we had great training. And besides the internal training we had in Leesburg, Virginia, um, which was a great training center, they also sent me to the Columbia senior management program in the 90s when I was first made a VP. When I was being developed for president, they sent me to the Harvard senior leadership program to help develop my financial skills and skills that I needed to improve upon. But one of the things that I did was I pushed to go to these things. Mm, yeah. I believe life. I believe in lifelong learning. You always have to keep learning. If you don't do that, you're not going to be successful. I don't care whether you're 50, whether you're 67 or 68 like I am, or whether you're 35. If you you want to keep reading, you want to keep learning, you want to keep seeing what's the latest trends. Hey, it doesn't mean to say, you know, you're going to be, you know, learn all this technology that may be over your head, but you should know about it. You should know yeah. what it does, you know, what, what opportunities it creates. And I think uh, uh, I was very good at, at, at really learning things from other people. And early in my career, I would say I wasn't as good a listener as I could have been. Mm -hmm. And then I became much better at that as I got older. And as I got in, in a large, complex organization, if you're not listening and you're not working well with other people, you're going to have problems because yeah. uh, that's what big organizations are about. You know, and you went through that when you were you know, working in the, in the Navy and, uh, you know, Xerox was, you know, when I joined was 100,000 people, you know, yeah. and yeah, uh, wow. it's, it's a lot of complexity. Mm -hmm. Well, I think one thing you touched on, I think it's really important, is you you know you you mentioned you were exposed to a lot of things as a young person, right? But um, but I think what what I gathered is that you said I I want to learn about this, I want to understand this, I want to you know you said uh, you know you 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 had you became a lifelong learner, and and the other thing is I noticed that in the book you talk about that in the early part of your career you're probably shy, you were more working class. Uh, hard worker kind of thing. And um, so where did you, and, and then you, you talked about the idea that you, you were, you were pushing for more training, give me the training. So where, where did that come from? Where did you have that desire to like, I just want to keep learning. I want to, I want to be valuable at what I do. I want to continue to be, to learn the, the skills. Where do you think that came from that work ethic? Well, it actually came from a lot of the people that taught me in high school. My high school coach was a math teacher. 
Okay. And I was, remember in the old days, it was like a thousand you needed to get into a decent college and the college boards. Yeah. And I was right. I, I wasn't, I was 160 out of 600 in my class. So I was a B student. I wasn't the smartest guy in the mm. class. And by the way, most companies are not run by the smartest people. True. They're run by people who have a good balance of both. But I would go at night and he would make sure he focused on uh, uh, me getting the right uh, background and training. So I did those kind of things. But the more interesting thing was when I joined Xerox, I'll never forget. I, I, you know, here's how bad it was. My wife and I went out and I bought a green suit. And I and I I wrote this in the book. I walked in the office, and it's my first week on the job at Xerox as a sales representative. And one of the top guys, Tom Zigarelli, who's passed away, died of cancer, was one of the most successful reps in our company's history. He called me in his office. He says, "Look, kid," he says, "take that green suit, go home and throw it out. Go buy a blue suit and a blue pinstripe suit and white shirts and show up tomorrow." <laughs> He told me, he told me right away. But but remember, I grew up in a family. We didn't have suits. I, right. I had two sport jackets I went to high school with, you know, because I went to a Catholic high school and I had to wear sports. But I had no suits and I didn't know anything about it. And when I went in and 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 he and he taught me and said, "This is how you dress. This is what you're going to do." And uh, you know, I, I listened to them. And I, I was very fortunate when I became a sales manager. I was only 25 years old, 26 years old. And the average age of my team was over 40. So I had eight mm. people, men and women who were over 40. And I was 14 years younger managing them. And I learned very early on, uh, you know, certain skills you had to have to be successful as, as a manager. One of them being encouraged to make tough decisions and having the ability to communicate effectively with your people and being straightforward and honest with the people you work with. But then also recognizing them and treating them the right way and uh, a lot of those things. But I, I learned those things very, very early. But I was fortunate to have teachers and priests and things like that in my high school who really gave you a good background and in terms of teaching you when you were young when you didn't come from any of that I wasn't getting that you know and I had a great role model by the way of my older brother who uh, was very successful in the Marine Corps he was uh, 10 years active 17 years reserve and he became Sherman of Metafest before oh, wow. me and uh, he died of uh, esophageal cancer at 64. And the only reason I got the Metafast, I had been uh, working at OfficeMax uh, uh, as executive vice president. He called me one day, says, Mike, I'm dying of terminal cancer. I need you to come take over. Oh, wow. And, uh, and he died six months after I got there. And that was the only reason I ended up going to Metafast uh, to take over the company, uh, which, by the way, when he died, the stock was 12 and I took over in uh, 2011 uh, as chairman and then became CEO in 2012. And today the stock is 212. Wow. So wow. It, it's been one of the most successful weight loss and diet companies in the United States. And yeah. I have a great new CEO, Dan Chard, I hired in 2016 to take my place, which is another thing you want to make sure you do. Companies are built to last for a long time. You want to bring in people who are then going to continue and make the company successful in the future. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. One ping only, please. As I thought, John Rennie's new book, All in the Same Boat, is right over there. It's at allinthesameboatbook.com. Your orders are to get there now. And remember, be careful what you shoot at. 
Most things in here don't react too well to bullets. Is your boss a jerk? I understand you're in the hospital, but I'm going to need you to come in today. Do they lack any ability to actually lead people? Oh, it's fine. I'll, I'll just find somebody else that can do it, okay? John is offering a new service just for you. For only $10, he will anonymously mail a copy of his best-selling book, I Have the Watch, to your boss with a personal note. Go to IHaveTheWatch.com and enter the discount code BOSS at checkout. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. touch on that a little bit later because I think you're talking about, you know, you want to build a company that's going to last and you want a legacy that that's going to move forward. That's refreshing to what I hear, what I saw a lot in corporate, which is a lot of short-term managers making short-term decisions to get their bonus checks and moving on to the next thing. Uh, but we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit later. But uh, so let me, let me ask you this. You, you mentioned in the book that you became a listener in a world of talkers. What do you mean by that? I, I like that terminology. Well, you know, you have a lot of people who are who can be very aggressive and express their ideas. And I saw many times at Xerox where uh, they did reorganizations and restructuring because they listened to consultants and mm. had people come in and do things. And we totally scrubbed the company. And yeah. and then, you know, they get the traditional guys like myself and guys who growing up through the company, they put you in the roles to then go fix it. You know? right. And literally, like as an example, we were we were booming in the late 90s. I was the number two guy in the US and worked for a guy named Carlos Pascual was a great uh, president in North America. And we were we were making a billion dollars of cash a year. Mm. And we were making a 12 and a half percent return on six and a half billion dollars. It's meant we were making almost uh, 800 million a year in profit. And then they restructured the company. Carlos left his job. I was moved to another president's job, my first one in, in another division. And the whole division went down and Xerox had to, we literally had to resize the company from 100,000 to 51,000 people because they, they the restructuring was a disaster. And then I was made president of North America under Ann Mulcahy, who was a very successful CEO at Xerox. And I had to build the whole thing back. But literally, it took me five years to get the profit back to where it was from the two years before the restructuring. Hmm. So sometimes big companies will shoot themselves in the foot, and then it takes years to bring it back. Uh, and, and it's unfortunate that that happens. But, but a lot of that happens because they're not listening to the people who really understand the nuts and bolts in the company. And they bring in some people say this, in this case, we had a guy, Richard Thoman came from IBM and didn't understand the way the company operated. And it ended up being a, you know, he, he ended up being gone in two years. And yeah. you see that Ann came in and had to spend years re reorganizing. And we eventually got back before I retired to 150,000 employees again you know, back in 2009, but it took, a sh it took years, like from nine years to get back to where yeah. we were. Before. 
It seems like it seems really common that um, you know you you have somebody that's brought in maybe from the outside, and then they they initially they go right for consultants right away, and then they listen to these consultants and and you know it's it's somehow we there's a balance right you you want to be able to listen to your longstanding employees to be able to learn and understand what's going on the best the best ways to move forward, but you also don't want to be uh, you also want to see ideas from outside from different industries you know, maybe different thought process and try to bring those together to make the best decisions. But I see a lot of times, a lot of people just, they default to whatever the consultants say and they end up destroying companies and then taking years to get back to where they, their, their former selves. Well, I, I, I think one of the problems is the companies themselves, companies mm. themselves. If, you, if I present it to the board and I see something and a consultant presents to the board, they'll believe the consultant before the company person. That's it. Yeah. Every time. And, yeah. and a lot of times CEOs will hire consultants just to get what they want done through the board. Yeah, And the real reality is what consultants do, and I've seen it happen many times, is they go out and interview, like I say, I had 20 senior vice presidents working for me. They go out, I had one consultant come in and was evaluating our service business, interviews 20, comes back to me, gives me a whole report. I said, there's nothing here you've told me that I don't know. Yeah. All you've done is interview everybody that works for me. What I care about is what the customers think. Did you go find out from the external side? what's really going on and why we're not being as successful in this area. And the only way we're going to find that is the people who are buying the services. And I said, you know, you're telling me. And so what I found with consultants, there are some that have been, I've seen that have been helpful, but I think the problem is they spend too much time internally in your company. And remember a lot of them are very young kids. They haven't really been in business. They were hired right out of Harvard or right out of great schools and they moved into consultant companies. And then they're, they're not that experienced. So here it is. I I might've been in 27 jobs in 33 years. You're trying to tell me how our company works. Yeah. Uh, I know how it works. I've been at every level. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it can be a very frustrating experience. And uh, I've had some that were good and others I fired after six months because I felt that all they did was tell me what I already knew. Yeah. And I think if you're a good leader, you're already spending time with your people and you know, and you're having those conversations. I think that's important. I think there are some, there are some leaders that aren't that are surprised by uh, consultants talking to internal folks. They learn things that they, they didn't know because they don't spend time with people. But if you're a good leader and you're spending time with your people, yeah, you're going to know the internal stuff. Well, you should be out there. Clear. When I ran the United yeah. States, Canada for Xerox, I had 51,000 employees in 150 offices. Mm-hmm. I was on the road Monday night to Thursday every week. And I'd go to each office and I would spend time with my employees. I'd go visit customers and I'd take the management to dinner. I did it every day over yeah. and over and over yeah. again. So you knew people throughout the country and they knew that you were out there to listen and participate and not be sitting at the head office and trying to dictate with memos and communications. Uh, you can communicate directly. And by the way, I, I remember one time in New York City, we had a parts problem and um, we had excess parts all over the place. So I wanted to find out what was going on. I couldn't find out why, why, why do we have so many parts uh, issues so with our service technicians? Because we had 27,000 service support resources. So I go out with a technician in New York and it was really funny. The first day he takes me on service calls where he's going to fix the machines. So he takes me to a locker and he's got all these parts in there. And I said, no, why do you have all these parts here, Mike? Uh, uh, Joe. And I see, he says to me, he says, Mike, he said, we can't get the parts 
and our supply chain is not moving fast enough. So I keep extra parts yeah. to make sure I can take care of my customers yeah. and I keep them happy. And that way I don't have a problem, but I'm sure somebody up top is concerned about why we have so much inventory. And you know what? That was happening all over the country. We found out that our system was too slow. Mm. And our service guys, who, by the way, you find out the people that are most important to customers when you're in high technology, is people fix the machine every day. That's how they talk to them. Yep. They, they become the customers close with them. They trust them. They're always there. A salesman shows up, sells you the product, might come back, but service guy's always there. Oh, yeah. So one of the things I always, I, what I always found was those people were critical to the success of your organization. I love it. I love it. Well, I think you're, what you're talking about is being present, you know, you know, being, like you said, you were there, five, you know, four nights a week, you were traveling, you were, you were with your people five days a week and you were listening, you were interacting. I think, I think, Many bosses are trying to manage their companies from a from a you know a, a corporate office or a, or a corner office, and they're not getting out and spending time with their people. And now that's where you're going to learn. Like you said, when you're with that service technician, you learned, okay, these people are throwing away parts because the problem wasn't parts; the problem was the supply chain, the speed of the supply chain. So they were doing what it what it took to take care of their customers. They were actually doing the right thing for the customer. Uh, given the speed of the supply chain. And you learn that through being present, not by reading some report. And I think that's a really important lesson here. No, yeah, it is. And the other thing is you find out who the talented people are. Mm. I, I went to, I'll never forget this one time, I was off on a weekend taking my son to visit Georgetown. He, he, he went to Rutgers, but he was looking at Georgetown. And it was a Friday and I get down there and I stop at Georgetown Hospital because we had made a big donation to Xerox did to the university and Kevin Warren, one of our Xerox managers was in a phone booth. He came out and he saw me here. I was, I was the, uh, you know, the, uh, the president. And he said, he said, I'm like, uh, how, how are you doing? I said, oh, I'm just down here to visit Kevin, but it's great to see you out here visiting the customers. Well, a few years later, I moved Kevin to Rochester because he was a talented guy. Then she became the president of Xerox Canada. He became a president. Now he's the head of marketing at UPS uh, in Atlanta. But he, he part of the reason that, that, that I identified him very early on as a very talented guy, he was very smart. He went to Georgetown himself and a minority male, and he did a tremendous job, uh, you know, but if I wasn't out in the field seeing all these people, I might not ever knew him. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, exactly, absolutely. I, I might have met him, you know, sometime, but, you know, you had to be out there to get to know all the managers you had. And you talk about this in your book. Is this what you mean when you say, like, the human side of business? Yes, I, I think well, I, there's two parts to it. One is I always felt you should treat everybody well. And what I mean by that is I treated the janitors, the guys who ran the parking lot. Uh, the, I tried to treat everybody the same, whether it was a senior vice president or whether it was one of the lower level people in the organization. I used to go to Buffalo Bills games with their manufacturing people. And I was the head of sales for all Rochester and I'd be out there with them. And they, you know, it was great. I love the guys, the engineers, because they, you know, you, you had to really become a part of the team and they didn't work for me. They worked for Ursula Burns, who eventually became chairman mm. of, of Xerox uh, after, after I'd left. And uh, uh, it, it was something that really mattered to me that you had a, you, you got to know as many people as you could and, and treat those people right. Because leadership is not about, a leader you're not a good leader unless you have a lot of followers 
So the real issue of leadership to me is followership, that they really care about being part of your organization, staying, working with you, uh, being a part of a turnaround. And, you know, what I found at Xerox when, when I took over as president, our profits had dropped from 680 million to 100 something million. And we had all kinds of disruption, turnover. Uh, you know, when you go to put those things in place to fix that, the way you do that is by focusing on developing your people, focusing on good compensation programs for them, focusing on making sure they feel a part of a culture that is going to stay. And you have to do a lot of things to make that happen. And that's what leadership's all about. And by the way, the people who aren't good, who don't care about the company, they're going to leave. And by the way, you don't want to stop them. Because, right. you know, one of the things that I, I can say about myself was, I, I always felt the institution was always bigger than me. Mm. I was a part of Xerox and I was happy to be a part of it. Uh, I contributed to it, but it was a great institution that helped me tremendously. Metafast was a great institution. I, I was a part of it. I had my time there. But the key is for the executives who run those institutions to make them last forever. Yeah, to make sure that's... other people take over and they go on. It's not a short, business isn't a short-term thing. Yeah. If you're there for short-term rewards, you're not a real strong leader and you're not a great executive. I, I love when you talk about that. You talk about uh, re you know recruiting a CEO to take over once you you know moved into chairmanship and um, you know and that that mindset that, that looking at the long term and 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 like you said, creating a business that's going to last forever and making sure that legacy continues after you. It's almost like you say, you know, the, the organization is here. I'm here, right? I'm, I'm, the organization is bigger than me, and, I, and I, I need to make sure that this is going to be here uh, long after I'm gone, long after I move on to the next position. position. That seems rare. That quality seems rare today uh, in, you know, this short-term make profits, get your bonus check, move to your next position, do it again. Uh, we, uh, that's at least my experience in 22 years. Well, I, 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 I think part of it is the kind of person you are. And I, I mm -hmm. think that one of the things I learned being a part of a team, and I learned this back in high school, back in yeah. college, when you're part of a team, the team is bigger than you. Yeah. And you're a part of it. You play a role in it. And I translated those views into business. And I I always thought I made a lot of great contributions, but I wasn't this, always the smartest person in the room. I, I had people who were brilliant people working for me, a lot of great members of my team who contributed to our success. And, um, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to write the book, because I gave credit, if you looked in the book, we interviewed over 35 different people. And a lot of them were key members of the team I had. Mm. And I wanted them to be heard. Uh, and they, 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 they had a great um, uh, impact on my success. Uh, I couldn't be successful. I mean, how do you manage an organization of 51,000 people? <laughs> I downsized it to 27,000 unless you have a lot of really talented people. It, yeah. It's impossible. And you're not responsible for the result, the team is, the whole yeah. team, the whole organization. Hey, you may get the credit at a management meeting, you know, when you're recognized or whatever as the leader of the team. But I think people, you know, you know, need to put their ego in the back and operate more directly from the front. And I think the, the, the worst managers I see and I've seen in my career are people who manage from their ego.
Mm-hmm. And they they think they're smarter than everybody else. They don't. They they just think they know it all. They think you know that whatever they say, they, doesn't matter what other people say. And uh, you know, it's uh, I'll never forget. I went to a meeting with Xerox, and it was our when they were doing a restructuring, and they were going to change sales territories. And you know, if you're a customer, you don't like to lose your sales rep. Right. That's not a good thing because you trust right. them. And there's a relationship. Well, they came up with this scheme to change 40 to 50% of the territories in the United oh, States. So I had a guy working for me. I was the VP of marketing up in Rochester, but I had a guy, young guy from Harvard who was brilliant. And he used to do all of our territory planning. So I said to him, by the way, go to the computers and put in 40% disruption, changing territories. Tell me what happens to our sales reps, our productivity. He came out and he said to me, by the way, Mike, our revenues are going to drop 8%. Our equipment sale revenue is going to drop 15%. Oh, wow. so, so I went and presented that to corporate. And then the next year they did it and it happened. Oh, yeah. Exactly yeah. what this, exactly what this and his name was John DiVincenzo, who was the young guy who did it. And, and it absolutely happened. And, you know, the thing that I did was I didn't trust my own. I didn't come up and say, oh, let's put this up in the air and say, yeah, yeah. I'm going to tell I went and had these guys do all this analysis using our computers and our models and all the things we'd done for years. And by the way, it spit out the right result, which wasn't yeah. a good one, but it, but it spit it out. But, but see, in my opinion, uh, listening to your people, uh, having good people who can give you good information and good data and, and help you not to say you're not going to foul up when I was at Metafast. Cause I was, I was an athlete. I was trying to do sports, uh, uh, nutrition. So we came out with sports nutrition. I tried to sell it to Rutgers and we got a few colleges, but I found out competing in sports nutrition when you've been a diet company all these years is not so easy. And, and we ended up shutting it down, but we, Hey, we had some good products and we, we did okay in the beginning, but it, it was a failure. And, yeah. and by the way, that's the other thing I would tell you, I was never afraid to fail. Yeah. I would try things. And if it didn't work, I mean, I tried to open diet products in Canada and it was very difficult. So we, we stayed away from Canada. It was, uh, we, we got approvals, but then it was hard. So we focused on the U S we focused, we have Hong Kong, Singapore, but you know, today we have 61,000 health coaches and we'll be, uh, you know, our market cap at Metafest is almost 2.4 billion. When I got there it was 250 million. So we, we did remarkably well focusing on, 90% of the core businesses we had, but we tried stuff that didn't work. Oh yeah. You know, and and I and I it was my fault. I I came up with some of them. You know? But I, th- I think you need to, I mean, uh I, you know, mistakes are really a, a big part of learning and a big part of, you know, um and, and developing yourself as an organization. We you have to try new things, you have to stretch yourself, and you have to learn from okay, well, that worked or this didn't work or why didn't this work? And you learn from that for next time that you, you, your next iteration of a, of a product advancement or a market advancement, you learn from that. So, you know, you know, you always say like you either win or you learn, but you, you never lose, you know, you you, you, you don't take those chances. Hey, the only thing you don't want to have happen is people who make mistakes and they continue to make them because they don't learn from what they've done. And that's, that can be a problem. I've seen people who, who, uh, you know, don't do the work and don't do the research and, and do their homework. And, uh, and, and that's important. Uh, you know, and the other thing I think is, is good that I always did was whenever I had meetings with people, whether it was a region manager in California or we had different regions, I would give written feedback after every meeting. Yeah. So there was no confusion as to what I said. Mm-hmm. 
And that would be very helpful because if I met with you and you went through your business and I compliment you on this, this, and this, and I point out that these areas need to be worked on, I'd send you a memo. Where, I, where would I start the next meeting? Going through what we talked about the last time yeah. and then seeing where we were. But it was always very direct, uh, open feedback uh, and no hidden agendas. I wasn't trying to catch somebody or, you know, it would be, hey, these are the things we need to do. This is what we have to work on and um, and give people the opportunity to achieve. Yeah, it, it's consistent. It's predictable so that you're you're always sticking to, to one script and one formula and they and it builds trust over time. Right. But That's OK. Right. He's not, he's not trying to catch me here. He's just trying to learn. He's trying to say, okay, here's the, here's the 10 things we said we're going to do. How we, how are we doing on those 10 things? What else, what, what support do you need from me? It's that, it's, it's that. that consistent, uh, you know, uh, it's a consistent feedback, but it's also, you know, it's a standard approach and you, and it's a continuous improvement. It's not this gotcha or surprise or one That's day. Right. One day you're emotionally high, one day you're emotionally low. You're just sticking to the facts to help sticking you. To the, you're sticking to consistency yeah. and, and building strong process management. And yeah. that's, that's what you want to do. Processes are important. You know it yeah. from your years in the in the in the in business and in the service. I mean, if you don't have good processes, you're not going to be successful. Yeah, absolutely. So so one thing I just found out is this the book, uh, which is called From the Bench to the Boardroom. Uh, is all the profits now are going to be going to the Jimmy V Foundation. Talk about that. Yeah, all the profits that I earn uh, as, yeah. as uh, part of the book are all go, going to go to the Jimmy V Foundation because I've been a board member of the Jimmy V Foundation since 1994. So the original group was when Jim died. And then two years later, uh, Pam Valvano asked me to come on the board to help really have business people to help drive the fundraising and all that. And recently we reached $290 million in grants to cancer wow. with, with over 1,000 donations of $200,000 each to researchers around the United States to go after trying to really cure cancer. And it really, today, uh, I'm not on any other board. The only board I focus on today is the Jimmy V Foundation. So I'm being a good grandfather and father, and then I'm taking okay. care of the V Foundation is, is what I'm doing now. Uh, but it's a great cause. And the book, by the way, is sold at Amazon. They do have it at Barnes, certain Barnes and Nobles and uh, Target uh, has it online. So you can get it in all those different, different outlets. Uh, but uh, that's really where it's going to go. And that was really one of the reasons that uh, I wanted to write the book, to try to make sure I helped the, uh, the V Foundation. And uh, I have a firm belief, and I try to get this across to my own children, giving back is very important. Mm -hmm. A lot of the institutions that helped me, if you go into the book, uh, I give back to my high school, to the Augustinian priest, to Rutgers University, to the V Foundation. Uh, you know, I uh, put time and money towards trying to help those institutions and i donate a lot to scholarships for athletes for basketball players and kids who are disadvantaged and may not have an opportunity because i know what it did for me uh i mean in my day a rutgers scholarship was only two thousand twenty two hundred dollars a year because we were a state school today it's probably 40 i don't know but, yeah. but the reality is it's a very very different world uh but i was very lucky uh to have that opportunity and uh uh, I want to make sure I try to help as many young student athletes. And the interesting thing, you may have seen it, Rutgers football team went to the uh, is going to a bowl game only because they had the highest grade point average of any college football team of those considered. And it was Florida, I mean, it was Illinois, different schools that were in there. 
And uh, I went to dinner a few weeks ago. Uh, one of my old coaches, Joe Boylan, died, and I donated a scholarship in, in his name. And I was sitting next to two basketball players, and their grade point averages were 3.6 and 3.4. So the wow. average grade point average of the basketball team there is over 3.4. I told both kids, I said, you're much better than I was. Because <laughs> <laughs> so, I was right about a 3.0. I said, you're higher than I was. But, uh, uh, you know, so that's one of the things I, I firmly believe that uh, people who've been successful should give back. That's fantastic. This is great. So what, what what's the best way people can find out uh, more about you in this book? Oh, uh, yeah. If you go on Amazon, they have, they, in fact, they all, they have like the first 50 pages even you can read. Okay. And they have the Dick Vitale, by the way, did the forward of the book. And you'll nice. see comments from Coach K, Steve Peichel, the Rutgers coach, Gene Renna, who was one of the top executives at ExxonMobil, uh, Marco Battaglia, who was a, uh, uh, a star All-American at Rutgers and played for the Cincinnati Bengals. Uh, so there's people from business, from sports. Uh, Dick Weiss was the person who helped me with the book. And Dick is a Hall of Fame sports writer, worked for the New York uh, Daily News and also the Philadelphia Daily News, 30 years as a sports writer. Uh, he's a Hall of Fame writer. He's written a lot of books with Coach K and Vital. And other. this is the first time, though, he wrote a book where the first six chapters are about sports and the second six chapters are about Xerox and Metafast. <laughs> so it was an interesting transition for him to have to go out of his comfort zone and interview CEOs. Uh, that's fantastic. So it's a change for, change for a sports writer going from Dick Vital and Coach K to CEOs of companies. Uh, this is great. That's fantastic. Well, I'm going to put links in the show notes for how to get to the book. Um, but I, you know, as I'm listening to this and I'm just encouraging our listeners pick up this book, uh, one is you're going to learn uh, a lot about someone who has, you know, started from, from university, uh, and got into, got into business and really rose to the top. And if you want to know what it takes to do that, uh, this is a fantastic book for that. And the other side of it is that, all the profits uh, end up going to the Jimmy V Foundation for Cancer. And so it's a good cause. It's a great book. And Michael, I really appreciate you coming on the show. I really learned a lot. And um, I'm really I'm really excited about this book and well, what it will do. I appreciate you uh, taking your time and letting me participate. I appreciate it very much. Thank you and have a happy new year. Well, happy new year to you as well. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening to Deep Leadership. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share so we can continue to world, build a world with better bosses. Until next time, this is John Rennie saying take care and lead well. Thank you for listening to Deep Leadership. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all you do. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more information and updates, please visit our website at www.deepleadershippodcast.com or johnsrenny.com. Until next time, take care. DC, I host the rock podcast back to the arena, the interviews. It's about a 30 minute podcast where I talk one-on-one -on -one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock fan like me, subscribe today to back to the arena, the interviews. Electric acid. Hi, I'm Mark and I'm Peter. 
We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts and hear the culture. Electrocast.